0: This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Every single thing that occurs, I want people to remember this is a business.
1: Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed.
0: Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Scott Sosnake. Duke. Everybody loves rooting against him, right? Evan Novi williams
1: Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier.
0: And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. The CEO of Oracle, Mark Hurd. Jared Smith, President of Ticketmaster. Indy race car driver, Elio Castroneves. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. I'm Evan Novi williams And I'm Scott Soschnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, stay tuned for a conversation with one of the most tech-savvy and entrepreneurial athletes today. That's right. We will
2: speak with pro athlete and co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, Paul Rabel, on the first year of his new venture and what's ahead for the
0: PLL in 2020. That is coming up later on the program, but first let's look at one of our top stories this week involving this long-suffering New York franchise. Swing and a drive, well hit, right field, back goes her. That may have been how the season ended for the Mets, but overall, it was a disappointing year for the team, which found itself out of the postseason once again. Chief Operating Officer Jeff Wilpon summed it up like this.
1: I feel unfulfilled.
3: I, I feel we left some games on the field that we should have won, uh, and we didn't fulfill what we really had as a goal, which was get, get to the postseason.
0: Well, now let's look at their quest for a playoff birth. It could be happening under new ownership. Scott, you broke this story this week. A Bloomberg Sports Scott Sashnick exclusive. The New York Mets in talks to sell 80% of the team to billionaire Steve Cohen. Huddle up around the set. Everyone, because Uncle Scotty's about to lay some knowledge here.
2: Yeah, well, before I even lay some knowledge on this one, Bar, I want to say how much I enjoy Howie Rose on the radio calls. The TV Mets get so much attention. Gary Cohn, Ron Darling, That's Keith right. Hernandez, like the best booth in baseball. How great is Howie Rose? Yes, I love listening I agree with you. to yeah. Howie Rose. But now on to the business of the day. Yeah, I mean, big news in the baseball world, not only because it's a New York franchise and it's the Mets and most people didn't see the Wilpons selling, but... Steve Cohen, net worth $10 billion. He's been in the hunt for, for a baseball franchise for a long time. He was among the bidders for the Dodgers back in 2012. He teamed up with Patrick Soon-Shang, the, uh, the owner of the LA Times. Uh, on that bid, of course, the team ultimately went to the group the group of Guggenheim executives and Magic Johnson and Stan Kasten for about $2.15 billion. This is a big price tag, uh, $2.6 billion, a record for a baseball team. Um, the question now is, what happens, Eben, between, okay, we have this deal, we have this guy waiting in the wings, uh, he's going to have a majority control of the team, whether it's 51% or 80%, that's, that's the sky, it doesn't matter, if you got control, you've got control, but... When will the changes be seen on the field and in the front office?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, as you reported, it's going to take five years from from what it sounds like, the way the deal is structured right now as they're negotiating. You know, Je- Jeff Wilpon, who is Fred Wilpon's son, will be the chief operating officer of the team at least for the next five years. Um, I think, yeah, the, the big question, if you're a Mets fan, you know, the, the Wilpons over the past decade, you know, involved with Madoff, lost some money struggled to, to finance or, I think, pay for salaries in the way that a lot of Mets fans or New York baseball fans were expecting. Uh, so I think the big question that they have is, uh, does Steve Cohen, who's worth $10 billion, does him taking over the reins of this team mean uh, that we're going to be spending more commensurately with you know our big rivals the Yankees, uh, and does that mean that the team on the field will improve?
0: Now, Cohen surely has his detractors, but there are those who think that he'll really shine in this role. And here's what Leo Hendry, chairman and CEO of Trine Acquisition, had to say about it.
2: Steve Cohen will do a, a stunning job with the Mets. Uh, there were stories about the Yankees in the Yes Network at working in partnership with Amazon to start streaming some of their baseball games. It's important that the Mets have an owner capable to do the same, to stay competitive in this marketplace with the Yankees. And Steve Cohen is a brilliant business person. Uh, He's a passionate New Yorker. He's a passionate Mets fan. And he's wanted to own and and control a baseball team for a very long time. And it's no surprise that he picked the Mets, his hometown team. I wrote a column years ago. Let me know what you think of this idea. I said, before anybody can be allowed to own a team, they have to be a seasoned ticket holder for a season first. (laughs) they should have to sit out and not in the box by the way you have to do it the Robert Kraft way you have to sit out on the metal benches in January to prove that they want to know what the fans are going through well, in Stevie Cohen, a guy from Great Neck he went to the polo grounds he'll know who Eddie Cranepool was he'll know Don Zimmer was in that team picture for the 1962 Mets the worst team in the history of baseball he will know these things does that make him a better owner?
0: yes because you understand the product I'm mean, sorry to put it like that but yes you do it's like if the fans are out there and and I'm sure that you know they get upset with the team too that's why I, mean, I don't want to start a feud but sometimes uh with the Knicks uh you know they get upset at some of the fans when they say sell the team uh you they don't know don't get upset they
2: just eject. Yeah. Well, yeah. See,
0: I mean, it's, you know, this is passion. That's why – and you said it's, it the best part. If, if you don't have the passion, forget it.
2: Well, I like it. you used the word passion. And by the way, we also got a peek at the note that Steve Cohen sent out to his hedge fund investors. And I'm glad you used the word passion, Barb, because that's the word he used in the note. But he said, don't worry, everybody. I, you're seeing these these stories about me and the Mets. He said it will never supplant. Even my dream of owning a major league team, the team I grew up rooting for, will never supplant my number one passion, investing. So it wasn't baseball.
3: Uh, He's
2: reassuring everybody because it's easy to get distracted. You know, once you become the face of a pro sports team, especially in this town, you're going to be distracted. You better devote some time and energy and Steve said that his his family office will run his stake in the team. You know how that works, though. It's going to come back to you. If it doesn't go well, people are going to want answers from the owner. So he probably doesn't want people too worried that it's going to take away from .72 asset management.
0: Now let's look at some of our other top stories of the week on Top of the Mets, beginning with Jacksonville University. Surprising athletes, alumni, and fans Sad news announcing that it will discontinue its Division I football team.
1: Yeah, I've been fascinated by the finances of, of college football. When you get below the tier of teams, that is, the, the money printers like Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, etc. Um, and Jacksonville, as you said, you know, announced this week they had spent 12 to 15 months reviewing the the finances of their football team, how much they were spending, what they were getting back, not just in money, but also in national recognition in donations in you know former and current student engagement etc and decided you know this is this is not worth it you know uh, and i'm surprised that there are not to be honest i'm surprised there are not more teams that make this decision uh, at the lower levels of college football there is there is not a lot of revenue there's not a lot of ticket sales you don't get a lot of donations there, there's no media money um and yet sounds like an enticing proposition and, y- and <laughs> yet teams and schools continually Pump money into it. Uh, over the past decade, there's there's more teams going up than there are going down or, or stopping. Uh, and I feel like at some point there's going to be a, a critical mass of this, and, and we certainly haven't hit it any time yet.
2: A correction. We're going to see a correction where enough... Universities realize, hey, wait a minute, that the ledger doesn't make sense. The red and the black.
1: Yeah. So FCS is the is the level they play in, which is the lower of the two division, two tiers in Division One college football. Uh, where's Mike Oresco um, when you need him? <laughs> yeah, and 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 the schools in the F- FBS, almost none of them make money on football. Uh, on average, they lose at least two and a half million dollars. Uh, attendance is down eleven percent over the last decade. I mean, give, all, give the, me all the trend of some, lines seem to be going down. Give me an example
2: down. of some other schools, who, just so people can get a gauge. What are some of the other schools? Because I I don't really follow it in FCS in FCS yeah, yeah. yeah so
1: the Ivy League is in there so Princeton, Harvard, Yale, etc uh Bucknell, Fordham, out on the West Coast, Portland, Portland State, Eastern Washington, oh. down south, Sam Houston State. Got North it. Dakota State is the is the giant in that world. I'm not saying um, this Saturday afternoon on <laughs> ABC. No, you're not. Exactly. Uh so and and that's part of the problem, right? There there's no there's no massive media rights money, which is you know the thing that drives a lot of these schools. Uh, you're not selling out 100,000 seats like Michigan is every day. The, the, the money coming in is is almost non-existent. Um, and you know Jacksonville looked at all the numbers and said, we don't need to do this anymore. Uh, and the the myth out there that I think a lot of schools you know espouse is that you you need to have a football team or a competitive football team. To be recognizable to people around the country, and I the think front it, porch. Yeah, when you reach a certain level, a low enough level in, in college football. That's just not true. And, and you're just chasing something that, that is not attainable. Wasn't
2: there a university not long ago that made this decision, but then there was like massive outcry and they reversed the decision? Yeah, so
1: UAB, Alabama, Birmingham, okay. they were at the top level. How about that so, bar? So FBS. About
2: that? I, I didn't know it was UAB, but how about that? I was um, impressed. Thank
1: you. They they announced that they were gonna suspend their football team and then the the outpouring of, you know, support and financial support. They were money beforehand. Yeah, came back and the team actually had a, a pretty good year this year. So they're back and active. Um I, I would have Imagine this is probably a more final decision if you're Jacksonville University than, than UAB. The Dolphins. Um, but we'll see.
2: <laughs> the Dolphins, by the way. The Jacksonville Dolphins. Th- that, that alone is reason to shut the program. Yes. Terrible name.
0: Uh, up next, it looks like the <laughs> Carolina Panthers owner, David Tepper, is on the verge of being approved for a new major league soccer team. Guess how much, Barr?
2: What do you think he's paying?
0: I bet you it's going to be dirt cheap. Compared you're, to other teams. Oh, I'm glad you, well, compared to other teams, you mean
2: in other sports. Yes. Okay, yes. $300 million.
0: See, that that is cheap.
2: But we're seeing Meg Whitman buying in to the FC Cincinnati at a $500 million valuation. <laughs> there, are, there are some other teams selling stakes at higher valuations than that. Uh, we're seeing MLS join some serious number club here. And you're going to start needing owners like David Tepper who can cut the check if they want the franchise. This is not ten million dollars anymore.
1: By the way, when does the Pocatello MLS team start? I feel like we are, we are we're adding cities left and right here. Right this this would be the thirtieth MLS franchise. They were there were four, fourteen, I think, five or six years ago. Um, the, the expansion there is 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 huge, and the expansion fee numbers. So when, number so when is they bring big. together Liga MX, how many teams are going to be in this Super League? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 65, 65 teams. Uh, remember, we've we've talked about this on the show before. We, back in two thousand seven, when Toronto joined the league, ten million dollars was the expansion fee. <laughs> I, I just want to say, Giovinko. L- LaFC was was one hundred and ten million dollars, which felt massive at the time then as well. Um, Certainly, a lot of buzz around MLS and, and valuation. By right the way, now. when
2: you're driving sort of along the Lakeshore Drive there in Toronto, notice how I said it properly Toronto, not Toronto, Toronto. <coughs> you're right. It's a beautiful <laughs> stadium. <laughs> well, it, it's a beautiful stadium that they have. It, it, it reminds me of the, uh, the stadium in Philadelphia along the water under the bridge. I mean, these are these are nice assets.
1: Yeah, Tepper for for those who don't remember, you know, owner of the the Carolina Panthers paid 2.2 billion in an NFL record for that franchise uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, just sold his stake in the in the Steelers as we talked about a couple weeks ago as well. I would imagine there may be more in his in his sports portfolio coming play in,
2: in the future. Right in the off time, <laughs> Christian McCaffrey can play a little midfield.
0: <laughs> hey, Un- you unlikely. know what?
2: People would watch. People would watch.
0: Oh man. Uh, anyway, <laughs> finally. And I this is on the racing circuit. NASCAR is all so you, bar. This something. one is all yeah, you, gotta, you, you got to explain <laughs> this one I gotta, I to everybody. I everybody. Evan and I are shutting off the microphones. <laughs> We've got this one, buddy. <laughs> they got some big sponsors to be in the Premier Partners, as they're calling it. Bush Beer, Coca-Cola, Geico, Xfinity. It's what's seen as a big change in NASCAR's traditional sponsorship model. Now, people are gonna say in NASCAR, well, what's the big deal? Coca-Cola has been a sponsor in the NASCAR for years. Coca-Cola 400 or 500? It's uh, the, well, it depends. If you do the July race, it's the 400. Okay.
1: And Bush bought naming
0: rights to two brothers, right? It's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Very terrible. good. Terrible. Wow. I, I saw where you were going wow. with that, man.
2: <laughs> I think he actually thought you were serious. That's yeah. The, uh, that's
0: the extent of my NASCAR knowledge. <laughs> but this, well, here's what's different. All now, the, those four sponsors are now part of the, is going to be called the NASCAR Cup Series. And those four partners are going to be what's involved. But
2: uh, is this indicative that they're having trouble getting sort of the overarching naming rights sponsor? Like Monster Energy yeah, was there so for sprint, a couple of years. Cup and yeah. Sprint gone. Cup, yeah, sprint yeah, cup yeah. is Next gone.
1: Sprint Cup is gone.
0: Don't either. make
1: me go back to Winston
2: got, Cup. I mean, I'll do I'm, it if I'm you make me. I'm proud of you, you Thank, ben, very thank you
0: very much. But that's when the whole thing started, Right. you know, back with Winston.
1: <laughs> so we're <laughs> saying instead of selling one Monster Cup Series right. naming rights partner, so instead of the Monster Energy Cup, NASCAR may be getting more money or maybe more palatable for for sponsors to instead buy a premium thing that is probably a little less expensive but there's four of them exactly no exclusivity
2: yeah
0: now now here's where it it, it gets sticky let's say for instance all right (laughs) this is uh, where the rubber meets the road this is where the rubber meets the (laughs) road coca-cola now is going to be one of the premier partners and i'm a driver for pepsi now we we've been through this mess before where you it literally it's you know it's like hey you know you see the drivers they're drinking a coke Just really like Martin or they're drinking Truex. a Pepsi
2: Smoking Marlboro
0: exactly. in the Winston Cup. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So there's some sticky points that's going to happen. I like the way you are putting that together. But uh, but they changed the model. And by the way, Bush Beer, uh, they returned as the official partners in NASCAR last year because they had been out for a while. So Welcome oh. back, Bush. <laughs> now let's get to this week's interview with friend of the show, Paul Rabel. He is a pro lacrosse athlete and entrepreneur who founded the Premier Lacrosse League, which just finished up its first season. He also plays in the league for the Atlas Lacrosse Club. Which did not make the playoffs. Yeah. Got to get my that, dig that was Got to get my man. dig. <laughs> He's a former first <laughs> overall draft pick in Major League Lacrosse, where he played for teams in Boston and New York. And he is also a former recipient of multiple MVP and Offensive Player of the Year Awards. Paul, thanks for coming back on Bloomberg Business of Sports. It's wonderful to be back. You missed the snow, so it's nice.
2: I missed to you walk. guys. Oh, ah. that's a good segue. This is,
3: yeah, there's a, a bit nostalgic here because we broke the news over a year a ago. Year ago, here, yeah. Through Bloomberg, yeah.
2: That's right. Well, but the big news now is you're vegan.
3: Yes, and I'm on <laughs> and, and I'm on TikTok. I actually okay. just posted this morning.
1: All right.
2: I don't now know how first, You and my, my ten-year-olds, oh, congratulations!
3: So our, our PLL TikTok account has gone uh, really well. I was going to say, I
1: imagine you guys do very well.
3: We TikTok. do well, yeah. and and we were to, to our standards late to the TikTok game, so to speak. But our first video got two and a half million views because the algorithm on TikTok is so unique. It's it's uh, it, it reaches virality just based on um, you know, sharing videos without amassing any type of following. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you have your cap based on your audience size. And TikTok just shares based off of their own algorithm that they create based on interests and likes. And that first video that we pushed went viral. And now it's our second largest platform behind Instagram.
2: So everybody knows these sports leagues are pushing content on social. Yeah. That's great. What do you tell people about how they can monetize, how they can capitalize? It's nice to be there, but who's watching and how do we get them to give us – their money.
3: We're, we're getting to a place where the most important factor in Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok is your engagement. And your engagement is much different than the impressions that you can garner. And uh, it, it really goes back to the same quality over quantity. And certainly I can sit here and try to pull out my partiality around being a co-founder of the PLL and say, Hey, yeah, we don't have millions of followers like the Yankees do on our account. But we amassed more interactions than the Yankees did. And sorry to pick on the Yankees during June through September. So what that means is our engagement rate is the highest in sports. It's 7%. Engagement is likes and comments on a post. So when Scott asked me, how do you monetize? You can go out and and publish anything and have it in front of ostensibly millions of people. But just like uh, a person walking into a store, if they're not interacting with the product your conversion rate's going to be really low. So we look at conversion rate to purchase as interaction rate. So most leagues average 1% to 2%. We're at 7%. What that meant, in my reference to the Yankees, is that we ended up amassing over 10 million likes and comments. They were just shy of 10 million from that June through September marker. And the reason I reference that is they're in season and we're in season in the summer. What are they buying? What are you pushing? You're pushing merch? You're pushing tickets? What are they converting to? So they convert to, inter- so the conversion can be through tickets, can be to uh, watch time, it can be uh, to viewership, it can be to um, you know our PLL Academy registration, uh, a promo code with a brand, and that's an actual link click. So that's another conversion, but when we talk about uh, your lead into it's it's are they commenting are they liking your post and there are a lot of tactics to it so the the most common pushback that I get even from social media agencies is well you have fewer followers so naturally your engagement rate is going to be up and I say tell that to Bleacher, Bleacher's got millions and they've kept six percent engagement rate because it's tactics so asking questions in your copy. Uh, having your your athletes comment and when someone hops into a comment section especially a verified athlete they're going to get a bunch of ga- engagements underneath them so it's, it's actually being thoughtful with the way that you publish your content it's, it's also no, you sorry.
1: know the ability to have good regardless of what you're how you're framing it it's having good content right one of the things you guys did which i think was pretty awesome this year miking up players live during games totally you know and i you know i, I followed PLL and I apologize. I, I'm not sure I can tell you which team won the championship this year. That's okay. You but follow us. I remember it wasn't Tre- his team. I, I remember can tell you, you that. guys trying to figure oh, out Scott man, Rogers here you
3: know, about like six yeah, months yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I cool, but I re-
1: remember Trevor Baptiste. Yes, that three five second clip of him won the faceoff live on. Yeah, said, yeah. "Hey guys, I gotta go." Wins the faceoff, runs down the field, scores in two seconds. They ask him about it live on the air, same set, and he's like, that's speed boy." Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> you know, and so you're you're creating those smaller pieces of yes. content that might even be more. And you know their
2: social team felt pressure. He had an around the world assist. You know, um, keep putting that one out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is the Our social I team. Gets I remember that part also.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll say though, Evan, this is I appreciate you saying that. So the whip snakes won, but uh, you go into uh, a, a larger point of which we've built this tour based model, kind of understanding the stickiness of social media as the predominantly used media platform with billions of daily actives across all of them, but. Uh, Sports fans on a four times rate basis follow players over teams. And that moment with Trevor Baptiste, I mean, you know his first and last name. Yep, He's a second year pro coming out of Denver, but he had this really awesome moment. We captured it uh, on the broadcast. We used that audio technology where we had a conversation between our talent in the booth and Brendan Burke and Ryan Boyle with Trevor Baptiste on the field. It was one of those perfect storms. He scored a goal, looked right into camera. I didn't know how he had that <laughs> wherewithal to do so. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we we think about social in concert with our players as well. So our players post on our behalf and sometimes call action to tickets and viewership when games are on network television, our partner's NBC. But we also give them content. And there are studies and and kind of, to be fair to Major League Baseball, as I spent some time with them in Portland this October is they did a good job with Pete Alonso when they announced him being Rookie of the Year. Pete published content at the same time as the Mets did, the same time as Major League Baseball did. And I hopped on CrowdTangle. Pete's audience grew by four and a half percent. The Mets grew by four and a half percent. And Major League Baseball got an uptick because you're sharing audiences.
1: One of the other you know, great mic'd up moments in sports I can think of in the past couple months was Sam Darnold, the quarterback of the Jets, sitting there kind of staring off in the the distance. You say great. I'm seeing (laughs) ghosts out there. Yeah, but that was also controversial. I think the NFL Players Association was not thrilled, and I think maybe some folks even at the network were not thrilled that that ended up making it on air. How do you kind of work with players? How do you get their buy-in to make sure that you're not, or or is that a piece of content that you would love to post, even if Trevor Baptiste was saying, "Paul, I'm kind of embarrassed that I said that."
3: Or like, "Hey, Paul, you just blew the game." <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think we lean into both. Yeah. A, a part of uh, the transparency and going to another comment on social media that you have to count on and bet on is is both the good and the bad. Uh, I totally understand where D. Smith and the PA and Sam Darnold and his camp are coming from because they're dealing with you know, multi-million dollar contracts and potentially in, in, a, in a very vulnerable position at quarterback. Uh, you say something wrong, that can be used against you in future negotiations. But at hmm. the same time, like, sports are about entertainment and distribution uh, and authenticity. And he was in that moment, he felt like saying so that it was a lopsided game. And it was great. And so, if you're able to zoom out and pull uh, the, the 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 person out of it, it was a great moment and and a top two per per what you said. But we train our athletes, so we have conversations with them. Uh, but we also let them know. And and Sam probably knew, and others know too, when they're mic'd up. I think Russell Wilson had a. Uh, a a bit that that went viral this past weekend where I mean he was a consummate leader on field and so good he kind of reminded me of Cory Booker where he's just such a great speaker you're like is this guy reading off a
0: teleprompter
3: (laughs) but there's you know you capture good moments you capture bad moments you got to have both we're speaking with the co-founder of the premier lacrosse league Paul Rabel
0: one year ago you debuted the whole thing Mm -hmm. where do you see it going
3: a year from now yeah, so we uh, we were really humbled to be here when we made our announcement, and we had six lacrosse clubs then. It was a mouthful because we had to explain essentially recreating the professional sports model, team sports model, and we and we went tour based. So we were sitting here talking about how all six of our clubs, over the course of a ten regular season game schedule, All Star Break and playoffs, travel to one location each week each weekend. They each play a game. And they win or lose, and they have their win-loss record take them through to the playoffs and potentially a championship. So it's a different way of thinking about sports. Luckily, as, as we've grown and through our partnerships with NBC and a lot of our corporate partners, uh, we've been able to uh, convey that message, and we've built fandom based on teams with no city affiliation. So much that we've decided and we announced uh, at the end of the season that we were going to expand to a seventh lacrosse club. And then the question is, well, well, how do you manage an odd number of teams? So what we found was interesting in the tour-based model is that we all have league buys. So that's how we manage the buy system. So with a seventh club, we'll have natural buys now. So we'll still have three games every weekend. There will be two weekends this year as we've bumped it from 14 total weekends to 15. There will be two weekends where we're going to pilot all seven clubs in market, and there will be four games. So two teams will play twice, so we're gonna understand if there's product market fit for four games over a weekend, and that'll determine this tour-based future if we wanna to go to eight, and potentially, is that too many games? Are you able to sell more tickets? Um, so there's a lot of learning. So when I think about the future of, of the POL, we're on to something, and uh, we've spent a lot of time with other sports leagues commissioners and other you know, nascent stage sports leagues and understanding the tour-based model um, and, and the future of consumption around millennials and Gen Z's, particularly around social, but we're also seeing even an uptick in viewership on television. The NBA may not agree with that, but television is still uh, you know the, the most prominent source of of live game feed and production. I, I think Adam would probably agree that television is still the predominant delivery. He he one hundred percent. He calls it the <laughs> holy grail, and uh, and we do as well. But so the future for us, as as we've told before, it could lead to a place where this league turns into a city franchise based model, or the the tour model could progress, and we could host multiple games in different markets each weekend. And I think we're we're learning as we go. We're we're communicating transparently with our audience with you guys, and um, and certainly our investors are are excited about the prospect of of either. This is where we find out if Colin Neville listens to the show because we you know we name
2: him and then yeah. say Colin, you better <laughs> let us know that you listen to the show. Rain Group, one of the investors, yeah. Joe Tai, owner of the Brooklyn Nets, correct. One of the investors. What's their response? And we're talking about the Premier Lacrosse League, the PLL. What has been their response? Because obviously nobody expects profitability in one year in a new league, right? What does the path look like? And what do your investors say?
3: Yeah, so we built our business in a true single-entity form, and we raised venture capital. And when you have venture capital come to the table, they certainly are making a bet because they believe in the business model, they believe in the pro-form, and they believe the long-term returns. And so it's different than going public, which is you know cheaper capital, capital so to speak, and uh, more reasonable returns. Uh, so they are long-term capital. So by that, it's like a, a 10-year plunge into seeing this thing grow from where we are in year one to where we will be, towards Michael's question. And, and so why that's important is that when you build a business at this stage, especially in sports and media, is that you've got to keep pouring capital in and, and make a bet to drive to that 10 to 20x return that a, uh, that a venture capital sports investor may want. Um, So right now, our our revenue comes from primarily five categories. It's media, and you can look at your media rights deal with our partner with NBC to our OTT platform. It's a dual approach with them, uh, and we have a JV in place there. And then the way that you can monetize social and digital, which I think we're at the forefront in sports from. So that's bucket one. Then you have your sponsors, which we came out of the gates hot, and we were pretty lucky with Adidas, Gatorade, Capital One. Uh, We had Corning Gorilla Glass, Vineyard Vines, which dominated our black Friday and cyber Monday deals. Um, you know, one, one phrase that an advisor uses to us as the CEO of Barstool is Eric and Ardini as their merchandise caps off is she calls it a content to commerce and, and the per cap numbers that we have that they have on site. It was over 12 bucks this season. Um, our conversion rate on website was over 10%. It's unheard of in merchandise. And that, that reports back to your content style. So that would be bucket two on your sponsors, and then three is our tickets. So we're resourcing that department more than ever uh, this year. We're excited about where we landed last year—over ten thousand per weekend sold. But our venues—you yeah, had big venues in some cases. Did you?
2: What would you learn when you played in like Baltimore, smaller venue? Full house. Yeah. What, so what'll change, if anything, for next year?
3: Honestly, the, the interesting thing about sports, and, and we're, we're going under the hood here, is that tickets used to be the primary driver for revenue in sports leagues. Going back to the Major League Baseball, local community, driving tickets. Then media rights came in. Last year,
2: media flipped. It was the first media time media. flip. Yeah.
3: Sponsors come in. And even if you go over to the EPL or other soccer leagues overseas, merchandise jumps in front of tickets because you're not playing that many home games. And that's why you have Adidas and Nike spending $100 million on kit deals because there's real retail value. Uh, so tickets, in some cases, moving to the 4th most important bucket. That said, the optical value that it brings is, is is exponential. So in other words, if you can put 10,000 people in a venue, if you go to 20,000, that feeling isn't a 2X, it's a 4X. And uh, sponsors care about that. Fans care about that. And as a result, your media rights will care about that. So we would argue that now learning that the experience of an MLS venue was fantastic for us. And we're going to be at more than half of them in year two because you have that premium uh, experience. And our MPS score was a 72. And that's critical. The fans are getting a premium experience. Explain it for again. someone who
2: might not know where that, that stands So it's a
3: for. net promoter score? Yeah. And so every uh, every you know, world class business uses it to uh, a- as a metric internally to figure out how well they're performing, and and it's really one question. It's how likely are you to recommend this to yeah. a friend or family member, and the scale is different than a zero to one hundred in school. It's negative one hundred to one hundred.
2: That's where New Jersey Transit hangs out.
3: Yeah, on the negative side. Yeah,
2: well, <laughs> I pick on them whenever I can.
3: So what's considered world class is a seventy or above. Apple and Amazon live in that range. The NBA is slightly above, a uh, slightly below fifty. But the NBA is, from my perspective, sets the bar in this. They've they've been around for longer, and as the higher the bar, the the more expectation you have from your fans. So we're certainly benefiting from the year one. Um, so so that's tickets. We're resourcing that, but the, the net of it is that, um, that from a viewership standpoint, if you could pack a house, even if it's twenty five hundred seats it'll feel like 25,000 versus if you have 25,000, say in an 80,000 NFL venue, you're running into some issues. So we're, we're figuring that one out. Um, And then the, the fourth and fifth one for us is merchandise. I mentioned that. And then the last one is our Academy approach. So what we're doing in youth sports and the, the the two things I wanted to share with you guys is that we've developed that using our players all over the country doing camps and clinics led by them into a seven figure top line business. Where we paid out our players over three hundred k, and that's in addition to their wages.
1: So when you think about you know ten year plan whatever, how do those five? I assume those were in order, <laughs> is that right? Media all the way down. Roughly, through, yeah. okay. How, how do you think about the percentages changing as things grow from year one?
3: Yeah, so, uh, you know, tickets are going to follow number of games. So we're at 15 weekends now, um, and we have seven lacrosse clubs. So as we increase our, our number of participants and thereby number of games, we'll see our tickets grow, especially as we resource them. And we're doing some tactical adjustments this year. We're partnering with youth lacrosse tournaments over the summer. And there's a reason why it's just us, Major League Baseball, and really MLS that are playing in the summers. It's a vacation time for families. It's a high sports activity time. So we're going in partnership there. We didn't do that in year one. Uh, but tickets I think remains constant. We can bump merchandise from a revenue standpoint ahead of tickets, I believe. I actually think uh youth sports is I mean, I know it's a huge business. It's people a will spend a rat only on two
2: things, their kids and their pets. There
3: you go. If you can capture that money, you're doing all well, right. Well, quickly shifting on that, we're working we're, we're <laughs> so much against. on pets. <laughs> I'll give you guys, I'm a, I'm a crazy star person. <laughs> but when, when a dog is included on an Instagram post, your, your post engagement goes up 238% sure. on yep. average. So much that our seventh lacrosse club, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing our it's subcommittees an to design a, design a dog <laughs> it should be in like, the like, logo like no the matter Georgetown what. the Georgetown Hoyas, yeah, yeah. Well, there are very few dog mascots that I think get it right. And, yeah. and if you look at the virality of dogs, anyway, we, we can digress. But that that, no, but that might be a hint. The thought process yeah. of what's
2: going into maybe a team name. I've, I've seen your fans have sent in some design logos. And then uh, also the logo and the research that goes into what might drive engagement. Yeah. I think people find this. Who would think, oh, I just think of a cool name and, and draw something neat. Yeah, I actually want
1: to dive in real quick on this. Because we we talked a bit about this when you were on the podcast a number of months ago. I think before the season started. Um all the other like traditional leagues have been around 100 years you know they have the benefit of teams that have identities, right? People either love or hate the Cowboys. They want they watch because they want to see them win or lose. Teams have a lot of money, not a lot of money. They have owners that are eccentric. They're lovable losers. They do really well on social. They do nothing the on social. Is that
0: what you mean? Yeah, just
1: just every <laughs> <Yes>. sport <Yeah. laughs> has teams that have different identities, and there is a there's certainly an equity in having you know people understanding what each team stands for and represents. Correct. I would imagine one of the hardest things for you is you know you built six now seven teams. Right. totally from scratch the ownership is not all that different they're all trying to do kind of creative things on social how do you differentiate how do you make someone a fan of the Redwoods versus the Atlas versus you know yeah. the the Whipsnakes I did it by uniform
2: there, there I mean, you go I mean so- that, that's Probably yeah, this is certainly one of them. Yeah, one we, of them. we did it when yeah. you released him. He he right away, He was a Redwoods fan right <laughs> away.
3: And, and Redwoods <laughs> sold the mer- most inventory uh, over Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So I, we we Bears have this conversation <laughs> all the time yeah. around. Okay, understanding, and, and we actually, Evan, we look at merchandise as a primary indicator. And we're very database. So we understand which players are moving their name and number tees, which players moving their jerseys, which uh, team only uh, sweatshirts and T-shirts are going off the shelves as an indicator of fan allegiance. So a few things come into play. So Atlas, what we haven't talked about yet and this is the club that I play for, and I appreciate you again bringing it up. Is we didn't make the playoffs. Actually, had one of my worst seasons <laughs> uh, from a performance standpoint, and it might have had something to do with operating the league. But I, but I will be coming <laughs> so out of the game. You get gates. it. So you get a I pass told you when I, you started the league. You yeah, get well, a pass. Yeah, we're behind the curtain. Uh, but but Atlas uh, has a number of the top personalities in the league, and we want to design that like kind of the Patriots or the Cowboys to your mm. point. And we remain the number one selling. Um, club in in our league from a merchandise standpoint because the players are driving it. But but second is the Redwoods, who didn't win. Third is the Whipsnakes, who I think has some of the, if you look at numbers on social, have one of the lowest following total audiences, but they bop, bumped up because they won. Yeah. The last is Chrome, who finished last place. So we look at players, we look at club design. And the Redwoods are a big one. That's why we're paying a lot of attention to the design of our seventh club, which we're going to announce soon. And then it's win-loss. But you know, being objective about it, it's going to take time to develop that that um, that lineage around your favorite club, and we may shift into a city model. But I, I do think we have it there. Quickly to uh, to answer your question, which I was kind of teetering around earlier, is, is I view the future of our business from a revenue standpoint as one and two being media and sponsor, three being potentially merchandise. Mm. And then tickets and depending I'm on what I'm hearing smaller
2: venues, which is what we're hearing in all of this. If I was building, like, even the NBA, if I was building an NBA building right now, yep. hello, Steve Ballmer, take my advice or leave it, 12,000 premium experience. Yep. I don't need an 18, 19, 20. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever. I, how many times, Bar? how many times have you heard me say it? The future is scale. Yeah, I've got a certain number of tickets, certain number of games. That's a finite number. If I can scale media, a
3: lot more money. I'm no home this. field
1: advantage for your team.
3: Yeah, you, if, you, maybe <laughs> I'm wouldn't hearing be. a dead maybe, quiet maybe arena. <laughs> now, 12, 12 can get rowdy. Yeah. I mean, we saw Premium. Like 500 uh, persons standing o- only, in then the uh, <laughs> okay. well, I can make Well, I'll say this this is an exercise that we often do. I'll share two of them. So we try to every quarter, Mike and I. Uh, Your brother, Mike, right? Yeah, my brother, co-founder. Mike, is co founder and CEO. Football player, Dartmouth. That's right. We try to do these uh, kind of really abstract, out-of-the-box exercises, and two things I'll share with you. One is on the eSports front, which we've seen uh, a a massive, massive growth over the last five years and so much capital going over. And then we've seen movement, and your guys' podcast was great, around Ninja moving from one platform to the next. The analogy that I was thinking about was Howard Stern going from terrestrial to Sirius and bringing subscribers with him who we, are willing we, to pay. We look
2: at that in like Mike Francesa and and Chris Russo exactly. They, they sort of Mike threw <laughs> some shade at Chris the other day yeah. about well we haven't heard a lot from him.
3: Yeah, but if you think about esports outside of the events that they host, like tickets isn't a big part of that, and everything is about paying up or paying for tokens or paying for merchandise on site. So we think about the future of pro sports. Will it ever get to a place where you don't have to pay for your seat? And you're paying for upgrades, you're paying for access to players, you're paying for, um, you know, merchandise or concessions on your phone, because the per cap numbers are only growing if the experience gets better. And then maybe suites are paid for. But as tickets become more de minimis in the total sphere, especially the NFL, you're talking about eight home games. It's not really that important. Doesn't matter to the yeah. grand scheme of the NFL. That's one line. thing. The other thing we talk about, and this is being critical over our, our business, and and one of the, uh, I think one of the, probably most uh, extrinsic, outlandish commissioners or presidents in sports is Dana White. We can all agree on that. He's a fantastic promoter. And Mike and UFC, I did this. For people who don't right, know, this. Yeah. Mike and I did this exercise: what if we brought over Dana White to be our president? What would he do? And I think the first thing he would do is look at our players, and he would say no one is is standing out enough and picking fights and we're not building fierce rivalries yet so to to evans point even around where do the cowboys and patriots get their luster from. I think it's sometimes it's the Cowboys having all the bravado and we're the best. And even if we don't win a Super Bowl, you know, we're still gonna be the most valued franchise in the NFL and love us or hate us and they lean into that. And the UFC gets it because these guys grab the microphone from Joe Rogan. They demand a title fight. They talk, you know, trash to their opponents and that's exciting and you need that in sports. And so But it better I, be authentic. It better be authentic, but you'll see us I think in, in the future, even more encourage and, and open up the microphone to our players because that is authentic. And I think in team sports, a lot of times players are nervous about uh, sharing their actual emotions and feelings. We're seeing the NBA do it more and we're seeing press conferences now go into the locker room to get a better vibe than a press conference room. Um, so anyway, those are some things that we talk about. Barb, before you wrap it up, I just want to say, I, I believe he's yeah. the first
2: guest to, to ever say diminimus.
3: Yes. I I can't recall another de minimis. Extrinsic
1: was also extrinsic.
0: (laughs) That was good. We got to wrap it up. But I do remember that you were talking earlier about content. To commerce, and I think of an old term that used to be in NASCAR.
2: Uh oh, here he goes. Win NASCAR. on
0: Sunday, sell on Monday, and that's exactly go. what it is. And I, I appreciate you that.
2: should see him. what is it a Mark Martin jacket? I do it. You I
0: got to see. Yeah, my Mark Martin, in Mark Martin jacket. <laughs> it's it's too cold now to wear the windbreaker, but yeah, I got my Mark Martin
3: jacket. No going. doubt, and that is the that is the core authenticity in sports. Is that you'll always be successful if you win. Right. And, and and like the franchise is gonna move more tickets, they're gonna sell more merchandise. A player when when they're doing their brand discovery across social, it's put your sport first, put your performance first. If you're not winning on field or on court or in pool or on the track, you're not going to reach your ultimate upside in total following. So like Success stems from winning and then creativity. But I would it.
2: also say, again, if I was going to own a team, what I would tell my fans in day one, I cannot promise victories. We're going to try. We're going to spend. We're going to chase victories. But I cannot promise. What I can promise and deliver every week is a great experience. That's I can promise.
0: Paul Rabel, co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. Man, a friend of the show, and we're so glad to have you in. Thank you, sir. We love being here. Thanks, guys. Something that caught me with uh, Mr. Paul Rabel's visit here is something, folks, I want to share with you that did not make the shows when the mics were off and we were talking afterwards. And he was talking about how it's tough for a startup to begin. And we were talking about the AAF and how it's hard for a startup to begin. And he really didn't want his league to be compared with the AAF because people will get the wrong impression.
2: Yeah, well, I'm just struck always with Paul by how much data they dig into. Nothing is done arbitrarily. These are well thought out decisions based on analytics, based on data, based on real stuff. It's not, well, I got a feeling. You know, he'll know, as he told us, which athlete in the league, gets the most impressions, gets the most likes, gets the most retweets, follows, like the whole thing. Which which athletes are driving engagement? Then how do you utilize that athlete to not only buoy the league but also the fellow athletes? It, I mean, it really is an impressive model that you can be sure other sports leagues are taking notice of.
1: To that point, you know, he mentioned. Briefly in there, that, that statistic, I don't have the number in front of me, but but how much better social media posts do when there's a pet involved, the specifically puppy. a puppy. puppy. Um and he said that in the context of talking about this seventh team that is yet to be named that they're adding, and how you may see you may see that team named after a dog because it does better on on social media. That's a great example. We we yeah. saw was an NBA owner recently that named the Bobcats after himself right just just hearing the way that Paul is thinking about something as simple or maybe as innocuous as what are we going to name this new team and thinking about it through the lens of social engagement and and new media I think that's a a really interesting look that would have been Bob Johnson by the way Bob Johnson and the Bobcats
3: my goal is to be the number one pick that's something I've been dreaming of since i
2: was a kid it feels better to be number one than number
0: five I wear the number because of Mike
3: we have a chance to go for three in a row good numbers at a good time When I first start
0: wearing that number I would just have Proud Bloomberg Business of Sports: The number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. You the have number, one. You have yes, one. I do. Right, the number is three and a half, and I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Three and a half. Is it one
2: half? Is it .5? Simone How is it Biles' foot size. <laughs> <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> Wait, what? What? <laughs>
2: What? Where did she come? Up? What I don't. She probably know. has tiny feet. <laughs> she
1: probably does. <laughs> I don't even
0: know. Where, no, I don't, I don't that's even know not what it. <laughs> but it does involve steps. Oh, oh I was close. Close. <laughs> You are, You do. You, you <laughs> oh, were in God. the right place there. The
1: amount of <laughs> steps it takes uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo to get from one free throw line to how dunk many in. steps? You,
0: now you know what you are. All, you're close. That's this? not it. But you're close. How many steps LeBron James took in that video the other day where he travels halfway around the court and there was no whistle? I I couldn't believe it. I'm looking at this and it's like, he's taking, you guys got there. That's good. He takes three. Apparently, he got distracted. I guess something was happening at the uh, under the basket between uh, two players, and I guess he I said it was. A, he had a brain freeze yeah. and forgot the dribble. And and I'm looking at the uh, his opponent. And it's like his hands around like he's hard enough to guard when he has to bounce the ball. <laughs> Don't make me guard him when he doesn't. Even LeBron said oh, that was scary. that was bad. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All, right. All right, thank you, folks. You've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every. Every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scott Soshnik at Soshnik.
1: And I'm Evan Novi Williams. You can follow me at Novi underscore Williams. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week. We're speaking with Zion Armstrong. He's head of Adidas's US business.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.